said, I don't know. Have you ever made that statement? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Do you know it's one of the smartest statements you can make? We like to come off as intelligent. So we often act like we know more than we know so that we can achieve that effect. In reality, however, saying I don't know can be a whole lot smarter. Aside from the obvious downside of people finding out that we really don't know what they think we know, there are some advantages to just being honest about things. On top of that, not knowing something is rarely a downside because it gives us a chance to learn something new. And people love to share knowledge because it makes them feel important. Even when you think you know the answer, don't be afraid to ask for more information or listen to someone else's opinion in the situation because there's always an opportunity to learn. Is there anything God doesn't know about you? No. Knows your address. Knows your name. Knows how He's gifted you. He knows your age. Knows how much you weigh. <laughs> knows your abilities, your disabilities, and your liabilities. Even knows the hairs on your head. Takes Him a lot less time to count some than others. But He knows. And since He knows everything, I thought it might be nice this morning as we continue our stewardship talk to talk about three things that we can know about God as it pertains to stewardship. The first thing that we can know about God is that God has good works for you to do. Ephesians 2, chapter 10 is the only verse that we're going to actually look up this morning, though I will be using some others as we go through our time together. Ephesians 2, 10. Ephesians 2, 10 says, For we are His creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time so that, so that we should walk in them. Dr. Ronald Meeks is a biblical studies teacher at Blue Mountain Community College in Blue Mountain, Mississippi, and he tells of a trip that he made one year to Italy that he went on with his father. The highlight of the trip, he said, was when they visited Florence, which we all know is the great city of the Renaissance. Uh, Renaissance. One afternoon, they went to a museum where a lot of the works of Michelangelo were on display. They looked at a half-finished sculptor of St. Matthew. And the tour guide explained to them that the unfinished work was a prime example of Michelangelo's philosophy of art. Because he believed that a in a stone, there was a figure, there was a statue that was waiting to be released. The work of the artist was to free the statue from the stone. Meeks said that the statue was so lifelike that he thought St. Matthew might just step out of the, the marble at any moment. And he could see that the artist had begun to free the statue, but he'd not been able to complete it. Michelangelo knew that what the statue inside the block was to look like because he envisioned it and he created it. God knows what you and I are to be because he made us. He knows the person He's made us to be. And He knows what He's made each of us to do. Unfortunately, we often get encased in the marble of our lives and we don't allow God to chip away at all those excess things so that we might be used fully for His glory. You know, some versions of this particular verse we read use the word workmanship. That word indicates that it's, uh, it's a handiwork. It's a masterpiece that is being created. And it also says that we are created. It doesn't say we are being created. It says we are created, which is a completed action. So God has completed an action. And that action is us, that creation is us being completed masterpieces. Now that's a very interesting thought when I thought about that this week because 
I don't, I don't know how you feel, but I don't think I very often feel like a completed masterpiece. It just doesn't, it doesn't register in my brain. But guess what? The completion does not depend on me. And the completion does not depend on you. The completion, as this verse tells us, is in giving in to Jesus Christ. Because God accomplishes His workmanship in believers by virtue of their having been united with Christ. And since He made us, it makes a lot of sense to me that there should be a reason. And this verse tells us at least one. We could argue lots of points of the reasons God made us. But in this verse, God says he's, we were made for good works. Good works that He has already prepared for us to do. And He's already provided for us to do. Unfortunately, though, when it comes to the stewardship of our time and our talents and our finances, many people in today's world feel that they are too busy. And so their time and their talents can't be used because they don't have time to give them. And they also spend more money than they take in so they can't feel like they can't afford to give financially. Just as this video we just watched said, this is a response of denial. We deny that God really does require obedient stewardship. We deny it in our actions. And we also deny that He will actually do anything with our stewardship once we decide to follow through. Denial is a big indicator of motivation. There's a quote that you'll see this week as you go through your readings. It says, don't waste your God-given life on low living, small planning, mundane talking, constant grumbling, or cheap giving. Be all that God has called you and equipped you to be. If we could ever understand that it is an act, it is an act of disobedience to God when we aren't good stewards, it would change our perspective on our stewardship of time, talents, and finances. God wants 10% of our time. God wants 10% of our talents. God wants 10% of our finances. It's everything about us that God wants 10% of, although we look at it just as finances. It's everything. And the reason? Well, in Matthew 5.16, we see where it says, let your light shine before men so that they may see what? Good works. And do what? Give glory to the Father in heaven. We are not just called to good works. We are to do them so that people see them and give glory to God. The use of our time and our talents and our finances is to be an example to the people around us of God's work in our lives so that they might be drawn to Him too as they see Him work in us. You know, during an election, it's, uh, which happens all the time it seems like these days, there's always somebody needing to be voted into something. Um, we're pretty good at making it clear who we're going to vote for. We don't do it in here so much, but me and Paula will talk about it, or me and John will talk about it, and yeah, I feel this or I feel that. We display our preferences on bumper stickers, place cards, signs in the yards, and on commercials. We might even go to a political rally. Oh, my goodness. There are also many people involved in those times that either don't care or they're just undecided. They don't know what they're going to do. But who you choose is often about conviction. Many Christians today fit into the ladder of this kind of person in that when it comes to who we stand for, we don't really know. Now, we'd say we stand for Christ. I promise you, if you're a Christ follower today, you'd say me, tell me to my face, or, oh, yeah, I, I stand for Christ. But I'm afraid our actions don't always back that up. We know the words to say. We don't do the things to back it up. Our stewardship actions also say a lot about our convictions. 
John Wesley said, do all you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. In my mind, that's a pretty good picture of godly stewardship. The second thing that we can know about God this morning is God can do great things through one person or a group of people that is devoted to Him. And we see a couple of stories on this. The first one is the story that we say we know very, very well in 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. Now we've heard that if you've been in the church your whole life, you've heard it a gazillion times. And I guess to some degree we do understand the, the basic premise of it. But when we look back in 1 Samuel prior to this epic battle, uh, we'll see that there's some things that took place between the Israelites and the Philistines that probably will give us a little bit bigger picture of what's going on between David and Goliath. This story is about more than just some little sheep herder, herder knocking out the jolly green giant. We find much more has happened to bring us to the point of the battle. In chapter 4, we come to the first battle where the Philistines and the Israelites fought. Guess who lost? The Israelites. So they decided something very interesting. They decided next time we fight these jokers, we're going to take the uh, Ark of the Covenant with us because it'll give us good luck. <laughs> Guess what happened? They got beat again. Interesting. Oh, well, God with them. No, the Ark of the Covenant's with them. That's why they lost. Matter of fact, the Philistines beat them so bad that they took the Ark of the Covenant away as a war trophy. And the Israelites lost because they didn't recognize that it was God who would win their battles for them. It wasn't the ark. So they had the wrong focus. Well, this goes on for about 20 years. And we get up to chapter 7, and the Israelites, they finally decide to repent of their sins, and they go to Mizpah so they can be judged by Samuel, and they want to worship God. And the Philistines hear about this great movement, and they think, oh boy, we've got them again. So they get together, and the Philistines get all their army together, and they surround the Israelites. And the particular place where the Israelites are is a very undefensible place. It's not really, I mean, they, they're pretty much caught, okay? But Samuel prays and offers a sacrifice, and after he's offering that sacrifice, God intervenes. Well, guess what the Philistines fought with? Iron weapons. Electricity and iron don't go together too well, so it was like bug zap city for the Philistines. They were just wiped out. You know, because God sent an electrical storm, just wiped them out. Right focus. It was about God. They prayed to God. God intercede. And God worked. In chapter 8, the Israelites began to demand uh, a king to judge them. And we know that king was Saul. Their pure motivation for wanting a king was somebody to go fight their battles for them. That's pretty much it. They really believed this was the man who would deliver them from the Philistines. And we will see what happens in that. The first time the Israelites fought the battle with the Philistines after Saul became king, they had just come off a really big victory over the Ammonites. But the issue was, is Saul, uh, Saul did not lead them into this particular battle. Jonathan did. And Jonathan did so because he believed that God was not limited to the number of warriors that were needed to fight the battle. He believed that God was in control. And it was just his role to do what God says. So Jonathan had the right focus while his daddy was shaking in his shoes, pretty much. He was scared to death. His army was shrinking. The size of the Philistine army was blowing him away. He didn't think there was any hope. And he's just fretting all over, the all over the place. And it got to the point after this battle with Jonathan where the situation between the Israelites and the Philistines kind of came to a stalemate. And Saul pretty much preferred it that way. If you look back the way he, he liked that. Because he didn't like confrontation too terribly much. Aggressive offensive action was not his deal. 
Once again, Saul's got the wrong focus. And honestly, this is pretty much the beginning of the end for Saul, but that's a whole other day. So I won't go there. <laughs> so now we get to David and Goliath. And you see what's going on to get us the Israelites, Philistines, David, Goliath. You know, we got this all going. Suppose you went to your boss one day and you said, boss, I know I've been doing a sloppy job. I haven't been doing my work. I've been doing terrible. But you know why? Because you won't give me a raise. If you just promote me, I wouldn't do a sloppy job. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you what you do, Mr. Boss. You give me that raise, you give me that promotion, and you'll just see how I can go, how I can really work. Well, we know what's going to happen in that situation. He's probably not going to be employed, much less get a raise. He'll be in the employment line before too long. We see in the story of David what God can do with one person who is completely devoted. Honestly, Saul had been doing a sloppy job. He was the leader of the Israelite army, the army of God Almighty. Yet he allowed a giant heathen to intimidate him to the point where he wouldn't do anything. In fact, on more than one occasion, Saul had pretty much turned out to be what I would affectionately call a pud rather than one to lead the Israelites. But sometimes we're the same. We consider using our time and our talents and our finances, but conclude that God can't use us for anything because the task is too big. We become Paul. Uh, we become puds just like Saul. And we'd rather just have our lives be a stalemate with no forward movement. We don't have the faith to trust God and what He's doing in our lives. At the very least, we might move forward a little bit with drudgery like our video said, which is just being reluctant or being like Saul and being unwilling to move forward in confidence and faith. Are the Israelites, including uh, Saul, are they scared? Yeah, they're scared. They shouldn't be, but they are. How about you? You got Goliaths in your life? Probably. You scared? Shouldn't be. Our fear, just like with the Israelites, not only demonstrates a lack of faith, but it also causes us to be disobedient to the commands that God's told us to do. We should be looking at our Goliaths like one giant. Is that all you got? We got God on our side. What are we worried about? Bring it on. We should be like Jonathan too. Be someone who believes that God is always faithful to do what He says and always be willing to do what God tells us to do. It's not the size of the glass in our lives or the arrogance of their words which cause us concern or should cause us concern. It's the unbelief and the fear that we demonstrate in those situations that should make us pause. Many years ago, my mom gave me a statement that, that quite often I try to implement into my life. I struggle sometimes. It says it's time to stop telling God how big our problems are and start telling our problems how big our God is. So don't be afraid to do what God says when it comes to stewardship of time, talents, and finances. God's already proven himself over and over again, and he's proven that he will honor obedient stewardship. Well, there's a second story that's got a few more people involved in it than the David and Goliath, and it's in Judges chapter 7, and it's the story of Gideon. Now we see in the story of Gideon a great example of what God can do with a very small amount of people. Just to reflect, Gideon was tasked with delivering the Israelites from the Midianites and the Amalekites. That was what God wanted him to do. But at first, he wasn't so hot on volunteering for that job. In fact, although he was very clear in understanding what God wanted him to do, twice he tried to avoid it by testing God to see if it was actually God telling him to do something. 
And we often do the same thing. God gives us a clear instruction and we tell God to prove it. But like Gideon, we say, okay, if that's what you want, you got to prove it. And just as he did in Gideon's story, he did twice. But God actually conducted two tests uh, of his own that ended up reducing the number of Gideon's army from 32,000 men, approximately, to 300. So what was the big deal? The big deal was, is the combined army of the Midianites and the Amalekites was about 135,000 men. So this whole situation was wopsided right from the start, 135 against 32,000. You know, it's, it's lopsided, wopsided, out of whack, uh, pretty much a disaster waiting to happen. But guess what? It worked. And why did it work? It worked because it was what God said to do. Stewardship works that way too. It works because God says to do it. God wanted Israel to continue to depend on him rather than think they had anything to do with the outcome of the battle. And God's plan did exactly that. This story is also very much like you and I are in our lives. We know God's plan. We balk at it. We test God. He passes the test. Then he does something we don't expect. Maybe even to the point of things looking like a good disaster waiting to happen in my eyes or your eyes. Only to in the end, he does something miraculous that only he could do. And you know what? He does it so he gets the glory and continues to prove that he's always faithful. If we'll be obedient, God is faithful. There's a missionary named William Carey. You may have heard of him. His life motto was expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Now, I'm not sure if at first Gideon expected something great from God. He sure did try to get out of doing this great thing for God. And we're like Gideon when it comes to our stewardship and that we want a proof that God is telling us what to do. It's almost like we want him to tell us the result before we take the step of faith. And the reason we don't see God do much in our lives is because we don't expect him to. And it seems that we rarely ever attempt anything great for God. Now there's something really, really great in the life of our church that's coming. That I can stand here as one of your staff members and say, there's no doubt in my mind, something great is about to be attempted for God. And it's going to happen on Easter Sunday. Now, I can't tell you the whole story because I don't have time this morning. But trust me, there are things that have happened in this process that there's not a staff member here that is not convinced that what's going to take place on Easter is God-ordained. Just things like getting a building for free to use. Things like ice not being on the floor in the room. We didn't know that until last week. And you know how it happened? Something else had been booked on either side of Easter. We didn't plan that. We didn't know that when we asked for it. Last week that happened. Story after story after story that is a, a, a complete conviction that we're moving the right direction. I firmly believe that God's going to do something great on Easter. And guess what? You can have a part in it. And we want you to have a part in it. There's a couple of ways. Number one, you can be involved in MOVE, which we still need people doing that. You can sign up today, card in the bulletin thing. Y'all got all that? So we need more people. We are simply going to go door to door inviting people to come. The stats tell us if we'll invite, they'll come. So we're going to see if the stats are right. Okay? The second way you can get involved is through these little buckets here. Here's the thing. God's doing something we didn't expect. God's doing something we didn't plan for. And guess what? It takes finances to do some of the things that God tells us to do that we didn't plan for. So this is a great way for you to take ownership and you to be involved, or all of us, because I'm hoping all of us are going to get to giving to offset the cost of what it's going to take there. And I'm telling you, financially, 
there's some things that just blow in our mind that we're not having to pay for. But there's some other things that we're going to have to pay for. And so you can take ownership and you can help us with that. And I challenge you to uh, test God in that. Give some of that. Now, don't give away your tithe to Easter. Okay, that's, that's not what we need you. That's an offering. And Brother Mike's talked about that. When we get back to thinking about Gideon, though, and what he did, it's almost like that sometimes we just don't really care if God does something in our lives or if he doesn't do something in our lives. We've grown so callous to God's activity in our lives that we just don't seem to notice him anymore. And I was writing this sermon this last <laughs> long few weeks because it asked staff how long it takes Don to get a sermon together and they'll tell you it's a long process for me. But I wrote these words. We don't care. Big old question mark. It's right here on my paper. I'll show it to you if you want me to. <laughs> Seriously? We don't care? We're God's children and we don't care. Is that the kind of life of faith and good stewardship? Is that what it looks like? Is that the kind of life that we think God has called us to? One, one where we won't be obedient? It's all ours? Well, I can just tell you straight up. I don't know about you, but for me, if that's it, I don't want it. And the reason I don't want it, there's no purpose in that kind of life. There's no satisfaction. There's no joy. There's no meaning. And if it is all that we think a life of faith to be, no wonder we're not good stewards. God uses people. He always has. He uses people to meet needs. He uses people to accomplish worthwhile things. He opens doors of opportunity to use people in a way that possibly only God and the person in need will ever know about. Does He have to? No. He doesn't have to. He chooses to. Guess why? Because He knows the blessing that we will receive from being good stewards and being obedient. And He wants to bless us because we're His children and He loves us just like any parent. But sometimes we do things we do out of duty. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Doing something out of duty is not always a bad thing. In fact, I'll tell you a story. The soldier walks 21 steps. On the 21st step, he turns and faces the tomb he's guarding. He does this for 21 seconds. The soldier then turns to head back the other direction. He moves his rifle to the outside shoulder away from the tomb and after 21 seconds, he walks another 21 steps and repeats the process again and again and again. Since 1937, a relatively small number of hand-picked soldiers have stood guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington. Over 80% of the soldiers who try out for the duty at the tomb do not get it. Each soldier has to have strong military bearing, discipline, stamina, present an outstanding soldierly appearance. Each sentinel must be able to flawlessly perform seven different types of walks, honors, and ceremonies. They must retain vast amounts of knowledge concerning the tomb, Arlington Cemetery, United States Army, and their unit. They can have no military or civilian convictions for violating the law. They must score a minimum of 250 on the Army physical fitness test. Their height must be five foot eleven to six foot four. They must have a thirty inch waist which presents a soldierly appearance in the army blue uniform. Those soldiers who serve well for at least nine months are rewarded with a special badge to wear on their uniform that acknowledges their service at the tomb. And if they ever bring shame on the tomb that they guard or otherwise fail in their duty, that badge is taken away. And so the honor that goes with it is taken away. 
When we think of duty, this is the kind of thing that we think. This is the story that describes duty. However, we see duty as doing something only because we feel like, uh, when we see duty as only doing something because we think it's the right thing to do, we have the wrong motivation. These guys don't try out that because they think it's the right thing to do. They think it's an honor. They think it's a privilege. Being a good steward to God should be an honor and a privilege. C.S. Lewis said, the greatest thing is to be found at one's post as a child of God living each day as though it were our last, but planning as though our world might last a hundred years. The soldier at the tomb, the unknown, is so precise about what he does and when he does it, to him it's an honor to have the duty station. It's something that very few people ever get to do in their life. It's a privilege. But at the same time, there's a price to pay. There's also a price to pay for not being obedient to what God has commanded us to do. Luke eleven twenty eight 28 says, Even more, those who hear the Word of God and keep it are blessed. So if we fail to only hear the Word of God and not do God's Word and what He tells us, we will not be blessed. And I don't know about you, but I really want to have God's blessing in my life. So obedience, and especially with stewardship, is pretty easy for me. Because I want God to bless me. If He says He will, He wants to and He will, pour it on. <laughs> you know, fine with me. There was a man who went next door to borrow his neighbor's lawnmower one time. After he asked, his neighbor said that he couldn't let him borrow the lawnmower because all the flights from New York to Los Angeles had been canceled. Well, his neighbor that was asking for the lawnmower was kind of confused. He said, what does cancel flights from New York to Los Angeles have to do with me borrowing your lawnmower? He said, well, it really doesn't have anything to do with it, but if I don't want you to borrow my lawnmower, any excuse is as good as the other. When someone doesn't want to do the will of God, no excuse is a good one. But any excuse will do. And this is how we often live when it comes to our stewardship. We truly don't desire to do what God says. So we use every excuse in the book. Here's some of them. Um, I'm just so tired from all I did on Saturday that I don't have the energy to help with the children Sunday morning. Or I had a horrible week and I just want to stay at home this weekend and recover so I'm not going to church. Or... I spent a lot more money on that new vehicle I bought because I really wanted it and it really put me in a financial tight. So I'm not going to tithe for a while. We do what we want to do. On and on and on and on the excuses go. But they don't measure up to God's expectations of us. And He is not moved by our petty excuses. The simple fact is that He wants us, wants to do great things in us, but He must have our total obedience. So the third thing is we kind of wrap up that God we can know about God is that God will reward faithful generosity and diligent laborers. Have you ever set a goal? Sure, most folks have. Now, I'll, I'll confess, some of y'all might not like this, I'm, I'm really not a Dallas Cowboys fan, never have been. I lived in Texas for three years and still couldn't get to where I liked them. But I do like Roger Staubach, always have. Probably one of my top five favorite NFL quarterbacks of all times. And I'd pull for him. They could lose every game, but I hoped he did good. <laughs> you know, it was just me. There's a story that at breakfast one Sunday during his first summer at the U.S. Naval Academy, an upperclassman came up and started poking on him and prodding at him and picking at him. And he said, hey, Staubach, I hear you're going to take my job away. Is that right? No, sir, Staubach told him. Well, that's strange. I'm sure that's what I heard. Staubach said, well, what is your job, sir? And when you're an underclassman, you've got to call sir to everybody above you in the military schools. Okay, you understand that. 
Well, this guy responded, I'm the number two quarterback. I'm not going to take your job away, sir. Upperclassmen seemed satisfied until Roger added, it's the starting quarterback job that I'm going for, sir. And guess what? He did. He had a goal. And he won it. He won the Heisman and all kinds of other things. He just was incredible. For Christians, there's a goal. And there is one goal. To hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That ought to be our goal. Period. Everything ought to revolve around that. Unfortunately, many of us say that is our goal, but it isn't because our actions don't match our words. Well, I want to hear it, but I'm going to go over here and do what I want to do. I want to hear it, but I'm not going to take care of that. I want to hear We got to do. And everything revolves around When asked why we're at church, we might say, I go to worship or I go to hear from God. But in actuality, our attitudes and our actions say, I want to be seen or I want to feel good about going to church this weekend or I want to have my social club time. When asked why we teach Sunday school, we might say, because God called me to do it. But our actions and attitudes say, I want to be in the spotlight or I'm the smartest one in my class, so why would I not teach? Henry David Thoreau said, in the long run, men hit only what they aim at. I like this other one. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit the bullseye every time. (laughs) Goals are good. But for Christ followers, our only pure reason for doing what we do should be out of a desire to hear, well done. There's a joke about a guy that died and went to heaven. Got to the gates and the angels invited him in. And he said, now where's my mansion? They said, well, we'll take you there. So they start walking through the streets of Goa and he sees mansions on the left and right and they're just immaculate. It's incredible. Pretty soon they leave the city. They're out in the meadow. Then they're out in the forest. The guy says, oh great, I got a lake home. You know, he's all excited. And he's looking everywhere, but he can't see anything. Finally they get there and the angel says, uh, there it is right over there. And he looks and he can't see anything. Finally, he sees a couple of trees with a piece of plastic draped over a two-by-four between them. Guy says, I'm looking for a mansion. Where's my mansion? Angel said, well, we did the best we could with what you sent ahead. Now, I don't know how it works in eternity. But I know that God counts. God sees. God records. And God recognizes our service done while on this earth. When we become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how we enter heaven. But the Bible even speaks that there's treasure in heaven that we can store up with our service during our time in this world. We don't do good works to get to heaven. We do good works because we're on our way to heaven. And the reality is, God's going to remember what we do. And God's going to remember what we don't do. Our stewardship of time, talents, and finances is the hinge on the blessings of heaven, not only for you and I, but for those that are impacted for the kingdom by us during our time on this earth. Our stewardship is a declaration of who we are and who we serve. It's also our way of acknowledging God as our true provider. I want to close our time together with a video. And I think that this... This will sum up what we need to be about. Let's watch this.